ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. We find the defendant guilty. She was standing at my bed, and she was shaking her hands like this. My mommy's dead. My mommy's dead. I've seen hundreds of murder cases, and this is the kind of crime that gives you chills. This case affected everybody involved. I can still remember it like it happened yesterday. And it affected me that these two girls grew up without their mother. Well, hello there. Hello. What's Welcome up? back to another week, another mm-hmm. Monday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm over here just dazed out like, yeah, Monday. Literally, Monday. she's sitting there and she was like, look at this sick setup I got. And it's literally just the microphone right to her mouth and she doesn't have to do literally anything. No. So I'm wearing like a super tie-dye t-shirt i'm like leaned back i'm like let's just do this <laughs> she's like not my week not my problem <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep <laughs> well speaking of my week i have a very interesting case and it's arizona based Ooh, that rhyme too Ooh. Ooh. arizona case arizona base interesting interesting case, case arizona, arizona base. base okay yeah i like it we've really been doing it for arizona this time I think I should just start off by just saying the name of our victim, and her name was Mary Ann Holmes. Have you heard of this case? It's not ringing a bell. Okay. Well, before I get into that, I'm actually going to fast forward just a little bit from her murder scene to November 22nd, 2016. So this was a very exciting day for many people in the Valley because we have waited years and years and years to try and find a connection with Mary Ann's murder. It's still unsolved to this day, but in 2016, a former resident of Arizona was actually arrested in Modesto, California for stabbing two people one of which was a 56-year-old man and a 54-year-old woman. Now, it does seem like this man who was just arrested had been living with this couple after his mom returned back to Arizona in July of 2016. His mom had been managing the Country Western Mobile Home Park, and this man who was arrested had lived with her until she moved back to Arizona. So once she moved, he decided to move in with this older couple. This man that was arrested, I will not be naming right now or anytime soon because I want you to really get a picture of everything that had happened for both this case as well as Mary Ann's. I think if I were to say it, I'm going to spoil it. And that's not fun for me. And it's not fun for you guys either. Yeah, no spoilers. So this man that was arrested, he became very agitated when he found out that one or both of his roommates had learned of his possible involvement in this unsolved murder case of Marianne Holmes in 1995. Now this neighbor told many others that this guy was featured on a TNT show called Cold Justice which is a show that tried to reopen and solve Marianne's murder case. 
and they have been famous for solving unsolved crimes before and of course that was one that they could not solve but he was featured on it and named as a suspect now this man that was arrested was obviously furious about being talked about and he decided to go to a friend to confront this neighbor who was talking poorly of him so he confronted them and allegedly used a knife to do his talking he was then taken into custody and of course this raised questions as to why the subject was so sensitive to him and if he truly was guilty after all these years well it's also it doesn't look good to be questioned for murder and then murder two people or stab or stab try to, to murder mm-hmm. two people. <laughs> like, exactly. that's not good. Exactly. Now, who is Mary Ann Holmes? And I am going to play a clip that's going to give you a grand picture of her. Mary Ann was originally from the Chicago area. She left to move to Arizona, and she was more of a, wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. Going to college here at the local junior college, she had joined the, the Mormon church. She was focusing on her children. And I know she talked to several of her, her friends and said that she wanted to find a good man. Marianne did want to find someone who could be a good daddy to her babies. Unfortunately, there were a lot of men in her world that were losers, and any one of those could be the killer. Marianne did have two children who she loved dearly. In the early morning hours of July 9th, 1995, this is when a nude little girl ran across church street in thatcher arizona she had a rope tied around one hand and her name was ashley and she was only four years old oh thatcher naked girl rope running church street now ashley ran to the molinax home which was across the street from the tiny house that both she and her mom as well as younger sister lived in now across the street was their neighbor Her name was Kathy Molinax, and Ashley, at only four years old, told Kathy that her mother was dead. Now, Mrs. Molinax dressed Ashley and went across the street to investigate. She didn't want Ashley to be left there in the nude, but she didn't want Ashley to be brought to the crime scene as well. When Kathy got to the house, it was very difficult for her to push open the front door because there was boxes piled behind it from a yard sale that happened earlier that previous morning. So she decided to force this door open, and when she did, she saw a horrible scene. It was the nude and brutalized body of her friend, 29-year-old Marianne Holmes. Now, the youngest child, who at the time was only 18 months old, her name was Sarah, she was not tied up, but she was crawling around her mother's dead body covered in her mom's blood. There were many investigators from every angle that wanted a crack at this investigation, and they especially zoned in on the murder scene. Now, Thatcher, Arizona is a Mormon farming community. It's always been the kind of place where, and I quote, porch lights have been left on and doors left unlocked for family. So nothing like this has ever happened in this small town before. And according to one local police authority, they stated that this case was mishandled because there were just too many hands in the pot. According to one article, and I quote, 
The small house was so full that they were tripping over each other. And according to my friend in the investigation, in plain words, he just meant there were so many officers coming and going that it probably compromised the crime scene. Now, this house was so small and this room that it happened in was so close to where her children were in the same room watching Mary Ann get brutally beat. What happened with the little girls? Ashley was tied. Her hands were bound with rope and her panties were cut off by the killer. That just gives me the creeps because you think of her watching her babies there. She knows what's fixing to happen to her. She's not stupid. This guy's a monster. There's her babies. She thinks they're going to die. That's horrible. That's the thing. In a sadistic killing, the fear that the killer causes to the victim, that's the turn on. Now, Marianne had her clothing cut off. She was choked with a cord from behind while being brutalized with a foreign object, which was something like a police nightstick. It was officially stated that she had died from blunt force trauma to the head, which was most likely from the same object she had been violated with. She was handcuffed with a cheap pair of restraints, and it was reported that a fingerprint was found on them. On top of the fingerprint that was found on the handcuffs, there was also a bloody footprint found outside her back door. The shoe size was between 11 and 12, and this particular type of shoe was identified, but other than that, the crime scene lacked sufficient evidence. There was small amounts of DNA obtained, but of course, at the time, DNA testing just was barely getting started. The shoe prints themselves tell a whole story about how our suspect walked around the house to that kitchen window that you could so clearly see into the living room. It's all very eerie and creepy. Footprint headed away from the house here. You can kind of see where this footprint is hitting as we look west. The trail of shoe prints leaving the property shows that the intruder went in a northwest direction towards the college. In this area right here was the last two prints that I was able to find that went that way. And they Detectives went... at the time of the murder investigation measured the shoe impressions and determined that they were between a size 11 and size 13. Ashley, at only four years old, was of course interviewed by Thatcher police as well as a child psychologist. She was asked to draw a picture of the crime scene. And when you see this photo, which I will definitely post on our episode Instagram, when you see this photo, both crime scene investigators, the police, even Kathy, the neighbor, stated that this photo was to the T with exactly how the crime scene happened. So this is imprinted in this little child's yeah. brain. And in this photo, it is very graphic. She drew her mother with a hatchet in her head. Oh my, that is insane to think that that little girl doesn't know what exactly is going on, but clearly knows the disturbingness of like that. I can't even explain that. That's, that's insane. Like, she was young enough to, and I'm sure with, you know, the child psychology behind of, behind it, she was young enough to be able to kind of block it out and not fully understand, but she was old enough to actually see it go down, and it affects her later on in life, 
and old enough to realize, you know, the bed is here, mommy is here, the killer stepped in the blood here, the pillow was thrown here. When you see this photo, guys, can I see it right now? Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to see it right now. Okay, so Amber just showed me that picture and there is, for being a four-year-old child, there's a lot of detail in there. Even like the positioning of where everything was located in the house is, I wasn't there, but if they say it was spot on, that's, Mm -hmm. it looks detailed. Yeah. And the fact that Marianne had passed away from blunt force trauma to the head and there is a hatchet in her head in the photo. That is some serious detail that a four-year-old remembers to the T, to the point where she can visually put it on paper. But also a good uh, clue for yeah, the crime. Absolutely. And they definitely, definitely use this for, for the case. So, Way back when it happened. Yes, ma'am. What did Ashley tell, tell y'all that she saw? She referred to, to the killer as a lion man. Uh, and a lot of people started <coughs> speculating as far as did he have long hair? Was it, did it look like a mane on a lion? Did he have a tattoo of a lion? She said, when I get scared, I bury my head. But she says she looked over and in that doorway, I seen a great big guy. She says, kind of like you and pointed to me. Ashley did a drawing of the scene. If you look at that drawing, and compare it to the photographs of the scene, they are real close. Now, Thatcher Police Sergeant, his name is Gary Cleland, he stated, whoever did this couldn't be human. Marianne was found in a fetal position. She was bound by handcuffs. Her clothing had been cut off of her, and she had obviously been dead for quite a while. The autopsy report revealed that she died of blunt force trauma to the head. By all appearance, he sexually assaulted her post-mortem. Vaginally or anally? Both. Both. I think he he inserted some kind of object. He spent at least two hours in that house torching her. So about 21 to 22 months had passed since the crime. And there was essentially this huge culture shock that gripped many women in the community of Thatcher as well as a neighboring community of Safford because it happened in between the two. Now there were conversations on the street that quickly turned to the subject on whether or not there was any news in Marianne's case. It was talked about constantly for the first year, almost year and a half. Sergeant Gary Cleland stated that this was the most extremely frustrating case that he's ever been head of investigating. And I quote, we interviewed over 75 people and there's still no suspect that we can point to. There's a lot of stress on our officers and we've really been putting in the overtime to try and get this cleared up. Sergeant Cleland also stated that a special unit had been called in from the State Department of Public Safety to assist in this investigation because there was so much concern from the public and their welfare. There has been little to go on for this case, except for that bloody print of the large shoe and money that Marianne had earned from that yard sale earlier that morning. It was missing. Kay Turner, who was a neighbor and friend of Marianne, she said that she thinks there's some connection between the yard sale and murder. And I quote, 
Marianne was talking rather loudly about what a good idea the sale was and how much money she was making. I think the wrong person heard her talking about that and decided to take action. On this very day, we have a garage sale or a yard sale. According to a lot of the witnesses, there were a lot of people there. So it could be a stranger. And it could have been someone who was there just looking around, sees that she's by herself, don't see a man, see two young girls. Now, of course, Sergeant Cleland said that that was also one of the main areas of the police investigation, but nothing had turned up with any relations to both the yard sale and the morning of the murder. Now, our good friend Kathy, the cross-street neighbor, she stated that this murder was the most traumatic thing that she can remember happening to the town. Kathy's great-grandfather, whose name is Christopher Layton, he was actually the one who founded Thatcher. She also mentioned that Thatcher's last murder happened about 30 years ago from this crime when a schoolmate of hers was killed by the woman's husband. Kathy said that before this murder, she barely locked her door in the past. Now, she's mentioned that all of her kids are always complaining because they have to go through so many locks to get to her. And I quote, we even have been running to the car if we have to go anywhere at night. That is how scared most of these women in this town were. It was a very brutal scene. I mean, of course, any murder is going to shake a community, but... On top of that, so I, I, I kind of know a little bit about like the Thatcher community and they are just kind of like a sweet, wholesome, loving community and something so insanely brutal and also with like sexual motives on top of a child witnessing this just sends it to a new level of evil where anybody's a target because it was so random and so senseless. Exactly. Kay Turner, the other neighbor, also mentioned that she had seen a lot of changes in the habits of her friends, even in the nearby city of Safford, including purchasing mace, guns, outdoor lights, and even guard dogs. Years later, Kathy also mentioned that there were, and I quote, gawkers that would still come by and stop to peer through the four-foot-high weeds to the murder site. She mentioned that Mary Ann was such a beautiful woman and she was growing all of these beautiful snapdragons for her daughter's wedding. And I quote, I keep hoping that we get some closure for this nightmare. Three people of interest were in fact identified early on and I have their names. They were Philip Turley, David Black, and John Bercy. There was also a billboard south of Stafford for a period of time, which was just asking for tips on the cold case, but they were mainly interested in confessions and eyewitnesses to the crime. Now, Philip Turley had dated Marianne at one time and seemed to have an ongoing obsession with her. David Black, his father owned the house she was renting and David was the one collecting rent monthly. He still lives in the home of where Marianne had passed away in. Now, John Bercy was Mary Ann's previous boyfriend, and he was actually living back east. But for years, only two of these had stayed at the top of the person of interest list. 
But John Bercy, in fact, had an alibi, and they mentioned he was too far away to have been involved. Now, David Black also had an alibi, and he stated he had been in Utah at the time of the killing, but it wasn't necessarily proved. Let's talk about the suspects. David Black. Now, his father owned the home that Marianne lived in at this time. I thought David was actually working on the house. The back door could not be locked. Supposedly, Marianne paid him $200, and the repairs were never made. He definitely would have known the layout to the house. And he lives in the house. He lives in the house now, where the murder occurred. Once David Black moved into the house, he started making really weird statements about feeling a special connection to the case. He made comments that I can't move out of this house because I feel closer to Marianne. How long has this been going on that he's been acting like that? That's him. I mean, he's just like way out there. Okay. Do you think that when you approach him about coming down here to talk to y'all, he's going to come? That's iffy. Philip Turley, he knows Marianne because he works at college. He kept like a diary or journal, and a lot has to do with Marianne Holmes and how he feels about her. And it just really seems like he cannot come up with the courage to even ask her out. He redrew house plans to include her in an art studio and her kids' bedrooms, and he hadn't even dated her. Okay, what about this guy? John Bercy. John Bercy was an individual that Marianne was deathly afraid of. I think in her words, she described him as a con man. They broke up. She started talking about, if anything happens to me, he did it. He's your front runner, right? Yep. (laughs) We have been trying to locate him. I have multiple intelligence analysts working on it. It almost looks like he disappeared off the face of the earth. Seriously. In 2013, there was a show on TNT, which was that cold justice show. They actually went to Thatcher to help solve this case. That's actually all of the clips that you guys have been hearing so far. Now, this episode is in season one, episode six. It's called Small Town Tragedy. And they've actually solved some other cases before coming to Thatcher to film the episode. So the show features Kelly Siegler, who is a former Texas prosecutor. She's worked more than 1,000 murder cases. And there's Yolanda McClary, who spent 25 years with the Las Vegas Police Department as a crime scene investigator. So they kind of specialize in solving, you know, the rural area, small town murder cases. In January of 2013, that is when Thatcher Police Chief, his name was Chafin Woods, looked into having some new DNA tests performed by a private lab, which had a handful of evidence and he was told it would cost around $15,000. That's a massive amount of money. Earlier that week, Police Chief Woods received an email from Arizona Association of Chief of Police advising with the request from Cold Justice producers. Now, Woods spoke with both representatives from the show as well as the Chief of Police advising, and they both agreed to assist with the investigation and reopen the case. Now, producers of this show sent Kelly and Yolanda, as well as a host of other associates, into Thatcher, May of 2013. So this group, along with Thatcher investigators, conducted 56 new interviews, and the show paid for the examination of more than 50 pieces of evidence that had been kept in a climate-controlled environment since the 1995 murder. 
Now, because there were new advances in DNA testing, it also allowed investigators a new insight into the case, which was then followed up with those 56 new interviews. Kelly and Yolanda decided to set up a mock crime scene to fully grasp what happened, and I'm going to play the clip now. We're going to do a mock crime scene. Does this look pretty, it, it pretty clear? Pretty, it pretty looks much pretty like close it. to me, yeah. So we can stand back and go, all right, this is what my room, short of the walls, would have looked like. Now here's our key point, the door. The door that she couldn't lock. We know that the back door to Marianne's house did not lock. She rented the house from a man named Roy Black. He said that he would send his son David Black to fix the back door. David never fixed the door, and it became the point of entry to this murder. Since Marianne and the girls slept in that living room, you would never be able to see an intruder coming through this door and down this hallway. This is all solid wall. They wouldn't see anything until their intruder is literally in the doorway from the kitchen into the living room. One of my thoughts was that Marianne is actually facing her intruder. She is struck in the head, right on the left side of her head. And it was probably the first blow. Your person would be right-handed. She also has a lot of blood on her hands. When you hit your head, what's the first thing you do? Oh, geez, you grab your head. Now, we have a rope that's involved that goes around her neck, and we have handcuffs. There would be handcuffs in front of the victim. This is the moment that Marianne was probably dazed, so this might have been the time that the killer tied up Ashley, handcuffed Marianne, and tied a rope around her neck, too. She knows not good things are going to be happening to her in the next moments or hours or whatever to come. The ligature marks on Marianne's neck are kind of weak. I don't believe that the killer's intent was to strangle her, but instead to use it like a leash and control her. Now this all comes to the ground here. This is our heaviest, really thick blood saturation. She has some pretty good abrasions on her elbow. She has abrasions on her knees, so there's no doubt she's down this way, okay? He cuts off her clothes. My theory, the suspect was possibly having sex with our victim before she was dead. And now all of our wounds are pretty much on the right side of our head, going all the way around to the forehead. All came pretty From simultaneously. Within a couple of blows, I'm sure she goes unconscious. It's a horrifying scene, there's no doubt about that. Just to sit here and realize I, I sound stupid, but the bed, I didn't know the bed was this close. Yeah. And it all happened right there, and those babies are on this bed. And you got to believe that Ashley saw every bit of it. Being at the mock crime scene and really being able to see how close it was when it all happened really motivates you to want to catch who did it. So when I saw the picture of the drawing that Ashley had drawn, on In the picture, it has Ashley and her little sister on the bed. She drew that on the bed. Yep. And so hearing that clip and actually seeing that really does make it 
even more sinister. Like I cannot believe that that's how close they all were to that crowd. I cannot believe that those children were that close. Yeah, yeah. Laying on a bed. The living room had their bed in it because this house was such a small house. I don't know the exact square footage, but I'm assuming it's probably like 900 square foot. Very, very tiny. So when the intruder came in, you couldn't see them because he was in a, a small hallway that led them directly into the living room where the bed was, where the children were, where Marianne was. They had no escape. They were trapped in there. There was, it was just a bloody, brutal mess. Thatcher police chief also stressed that allowing this television show to assist with their case was the best way to, and I quote, aid its solution and that family members were in favor of this inclusion. So they decided to interview Ashley, who again, at the time of the murder, was only four years old. Ashley? Yolanda McClary. Ashley might not have been hurt physically, but emotionally and mentally, she needs to have this person taken off the streets so that she can feel safe and get on with her life. Tell us what you think about all this. I mean, it makes me nervous to be here. Shortly after her mom was murdered, Ashley and her little sister went to live with her grandmother out of state. The killer could still be living in this town, so I'm sure she's terrified by that thought and also just about having to come back. Tell us about the favorite thing you remember about your mom. Um, we used to read every night before I went to bed, so we would always cuddle together and everything. Sometimes I get really sad and I'm just in this place where it's like, I feel like a four-year-old again and I just want my mom to wake up. She should have been here. She wanted to be a mom really bad. She wanted to be with us. I should have had her, you know? How much do you remember? I remember the next morning really well. Okay. Um, and I remember before it happened pretty well, but kind of a blur in between. That's probably normal, yeah. don't you think? I think so. Yeah. Over the past 18 years, through interviews and therapies, Ashley's tried her very hardest to come up with information that would lead to who killed her mother. But because of how young she was, we just want her to know that she shouldn't have to worry about that anymore. Because you know what, baby? Here's the thing. There's nothing you're ever going to remember that's going to solve this case. It's not going to happen. So no pressure. It's relieving. We're going to yeah. talk to everybody we can think of try to find out whatever we can, okay? We're doing this for you. It means a lot to my family, so. I think it's just time to let it go and just know that it's in someone else's hands. After meeting with Ashley, this made both Kelly and Yolanda determined to find out who the killer was. Now, remember the DNA that was retested? I remember the DNA. <laughs> the expensive DNA. The very expensive DNA. That sample had become degraded to a larger extent because of improper storage. I thought it was air controlled. It was climate controlled, but within the years between 1995 and 2013, there was a lot of movement that had happened and they were unable with, even with the new methods, to really isolate a DNA profile. So it was considered incomplete. In other words, it did not contain enough DNA to really point to matching a killer. Today we're getting the DNA results back. We're hoping that we can get a DNA profile on the suspect. Over 50 pieces of evidence went to Sorensen Lab. 
It was the most I've ever seen. That ink ribbon's gonna run out before you print 140 pages. We know the weapons used by the killer were brought by him because none of these weapons belong to Marianne. Anyone who would do this kind of a crime and bring his own murder weapons with him to the house probably also wore gloves. But what I'm hoping for is he bought those sometime way prior to the murder without gloves, and that's where we're going to get our DNA. All right, let's first take our handcuffs. On the handcuffs, we have no DNA. Well, that's frustrating because we know our killer brought those there. Then we have the rope on our victim. There is DNA detected on it. Unfortunately, it is so slight that it is inconclusive. He bought the rope someday, somewhere, and he put it in his garage. He didn't do it with gloves. That's why I thought the rope would come back. Now, I do have something interesting on the bag of clothes. The threshold on it was still too small to develop a profile that could be compared to someone. But this piece of DNA could exclude. It excluded John Bercy and David Black. I also have two picture frames also on the crime scene. Again, it did the same thing. It excluded John Bercy and David Black. But they have Philip Turley's, and they cannot exclude Philip Turley, right? Exactly. They've, they've had Philip Turley's. They compared Philip Turley's, and they can't exclude him. DNA profiles are unique to each person, but sometimes we only get a partial small profile. In that case, it can't be used as an exact match, but it can be used to exclude people. Think of it like a lottery when you only know a few of the winning numbers. In this case, David Black and John Bercy didn't have any of the numbers. So there's no way that they touched the evidence and now they can be excluded. But Philip Turley does match a few of those numbers. So we're not going to exclude him. Now I do wanna point out that even though the DNA excluded two out of three of our people of interest, that does not mean that they still were not involved in the case. That just means that they might not have touched or the fingerprints and DNA that they did pick up from those items might not have been theirs exactly. So keep that in mind. Now, a private investigator in one of the articles that I read had a very, I guess, interesting statement. And I quote, I have always believed that there is DNA that came from a photo frame with a picture of Marianne in it that the killer removed his gloves to take. This is only speculation on my part, but I think this was held back from the public so that only the killer and the police knew a photo was taken. In any case, if a photo of Marianne was taken and is ever found in the possession of a suspect using a search warrant, that would seal the deal. Now you know this small town murder episode definitely investigated all three of our suspects. They did start with David. So David was still living at the house where Marianne had passed away in. So remember, his father owned the home at the time. He was also asked to replace the lock on the door where the intruder went in. Kelly, Yolanda, and the producers went to the house and he was just spitting out conspiracy theories about what happened to Marianne and not making any sense at all. As always, one of the first things we want to do is go to the crime scene to get an idea of the actual space. 
That means getting one of the suspects who lives there to let us inside. Wow, that is a little house. Sure is. David Black has a history of being paranoid and sometimes dangerous, so the investigators need to take a special approach in figuring out a way to convince him to let us inside the house. Are you serving someone? No, no, we just come to talk to you for a minute. I'm Kendall Curtis with the police department. I'm an investigator that was brought in to look into Mary Ann's case. I will be honest with you, it has to do with this fundamentalist LDS religion. Those people believe that if somebody denies the faith, that it's your obligation to shed their blood. This Mary Ann is not the first one. I feel like she was assassinated by special forces. They killed her. It killed me. It killed my dad. It killed two or three other people. Hold on, guys. My phone's going off. Alan just let us know that they're not getting anywhere useful with David. He's still spouting out conspiracy theories. And unfortunately, he's also unwilling to let us investigate his house, which is our crime scene. Now, although David did not let them in the house where Marianne had passed away, he was just spewing out conspiracy theories about what happened that night. He eventually came around. He also had an alibi, but he was interviewed not by Kelly and Yolanda, but by Thatcher police. Did he ever talk about Marianne, the young lady that was All the time. I know he's absolutely obsessed with that murder. Do you think David would have done that? I will say this. I think it's a possibility. He hears voices, and the voices talk to him, and the voices tell him stuff. I think he's capable of listening to the voices and going nuts. So back when Marianne moved into your home that you were renting to her, did you ever become friends with Marianne? No, I didn't get real close to her myself. Marianne died July of 1995. Uh-huh. Okay. Was David living here with you at the time? No, he was living out in Salt Lake, Utah. Oh, okay. He was in Utah. Do you know of any kind of relationship between he and Marianne at all? Not to my knowledge. He was up going to school and worked out in Utah. David Black still seems real suspicious, but he's not talking to us. Well, thank you for coming down. You bet. So there's not a whole lot more we can do in that direction to try and determine what to do with him right now. David Black is here to see you. Get out of here. He's right out there, and he's got a bunch of documents he wants to show you. You know, it seems to me like David Black's father must have told him to come over here and talk to us and explain to us where he was that day and to try and clear his name. There were some actions that brought you to our attention. Your father rents the house. There was word that you may have done some repairs because at the time her house was having some repair done on it. And so in any investigation, you look at you look at the people who had access. We know that David had met Marianne when she rented his father's house. And he was supposed to repair the broken door that the killer entered, but he never did. I should have brought this out sooner because uh, this does have some things I think are helpful. Can I see this for a minute? Sure. David Black brought writings from his journal that indicate that he was in Provo, Utah, both before the murder, after the murder, and on the dates of the murder. Do you have, through like the fifth, I guess the sheet before and the sheet after this? I have the whole year of 95. Everything he wrote in his journal in regards to his girlfriend, the school he was attending, and where he was working, it all checks out and proves that he was nowhere near Marianne's house on the night of the murder. We'd like to get a DNA sample swab. I'll be happy to do that. Okay. Just put it on the inside of your cheek and just kind of wave it around a little bit and stick them in the box. This evening, would we be able to come back to your house, look around again and walk through it? Okay. Okay. This evening.
Before we move on to Philip, even though he is now one of the prime suspects, I'm going to talk a little bit about our suspect, John. Now, early on in this case, police thought that they received a break. And that was because it was discovered that Mary Ann had filed a report just weeks before her death that she feared that a former boyfriend in Florida who just contacted her by phone was thought to be en route to Thatcher. We have a lot of things pointing in the direction of John Bercy, the man Marianne was dating when she moved to Thatcher. Even though Bercy claims he was in Florida at the time of the murder, we need to find witnesses who can tell us all about that to see what they have to say. Okay, let's go hope she's here. Barbara Abbott. Barbara Abbott. She started running around with him. You mean John Bercy? Yeah, John Bercy. you call Bercy. him John or Jack? Jack, I guess. All right, go ahead. Right away, sweeping her off her feet, wanting to get married. So anyway, he was nothing but a liar and a real smooth con man at that. So what happened is he talked this bullshit for so long, and Marianne got really angry, and she was like, I hate your guts. I want you out of here. Just leave. And how was he acting when y'all were kicking him out? Oh, he had a violent temper. When Marianne and John Bercy broke up, she moved to Thatcher to get away from him. She was definitely running away from a relationship that had gone bad. I could see in her eyes that she was scared. I do know one thing. She actually got phone calls from him, and that was probably two weeks before she was murdered. Hello. Hi, is this Naomi? Yes, it is. Naomi, let me ask you something. Sure. This story about this very, very upsetting phone call that Marianne got. Did, did you remember her saying? I can tell you an incident that happened before she was killed. All right, talk about that. It was probably about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, I don't know. And somebody was pounding on my door. It was Marianne. And she was shaking, and she was so scared. She'd gotten a phone call, and it was him. And she was just terrified because he knew where she was now. Sheriff's office. Hi, um, I've been contacted by a person that I previously had a, a problem with, and they just basically called me to tell me that they, they knew where I was, and I am, I am a little scared because he comes to my that. door in the middle of the night, and then I call you guys. You know what I mean? That's Chief Woods. This is Dan Stanley calling. I got Deputy Sheriff come by and gave me your number and said to call you. John Bercy's alibi is that he was staying with a man named Dan Stanley and his wife in Florida at the time the murder occurred. No matter the threats, no matter what John Bercy has done previous to the murder, if his alibi is solid, it doesn't matter. Do you remember the name John Bercy? Yep. We met him because our truck was running bad. John and I drove his truck and pulled my Jeep. In your original statement to the police, you said that you and John left Nevada on June the 30th, 1995. And then y'all drove across the country all the way to Jacksonville, Florida, and arrived there sometime around July the 4th. So the critical question is, between July 4th and July the 11th, did he leave for any significant amount of time? I would have to say no on that, because he didn't have a dime to his name. He was with me all the time. Is your wife there, sir? Yeah, hold on just a second. Hello? Miss Stanley, do you recall the time frame that we're talking about and the guy we're talking about? Yes, I do. He didn't disappear long enough to go to Arizona and get back to Florida before he got arrested during that time period, right? Oh, no, absolutely not. Oh. He was there with us. 
And he wouldn't have had the money to go anywhere in his old beat-up truck anyway. John Bercy's alibi is about as solid as an alibi can be, I have to say. She's scared to death of Bercy, and she should have been because he's a freak. And the one that's after her that she never saw coming could be our killer. John's alibi was, in fact, cleared by a friend whose house he stayed in in Florida. So again, his alibi checked out, and he was no longer a suspect to the crime. So now we go to Philip. Now, although Marianne did not seem interested in him after their original date, he drew up plans to build a house for her and her children to live with him and kept a journal of all of his admirations for her. His obsession with her only grew stronger as time went on. Now, the show had dismissed both David Black and John Bercy as suspects which means that they honed in on Phil being the primary suspect for this case. When Philip was first interviewed, police investigators stated that Phil was extremely intelligent and almost condescending to the officers. He assured them that he would be glad to return to Safford for further questions if necessary, but his helpful demeanor at the time was never seen again, and he ignored further requests for interviews. There was a consultant for the show Cold Justice. His name was Attorney Murray Newman, and he wrote a blog regarding Phil Turley. I quote, his fascination with Mary Ann was well documented in his own words as he kept a very detailed journal on his feelings for her. Women that Turley had dated told investigators disturbing details of his, and I quote, fantasy life that deemed consistent with details of the crime scene. Unlike many other suspects that the police interviewed, Turley was extremely intelligent, and to make matters more difficult, he had advanced information that he was about to be interviewed by the investigators. Despite initially seeming agitated about being interviewed, Turley was ultimately cooperative and answered every question that the two investigators had for him. He had rational and reasoned answers for almost everything, but at times it seemed as if he were taunting the investigators. At the time of the interview, Philip Turley had done nothing to further implicate himself in the murder of Mary Ann Holmes, end quote. Even though the show Cold Justice pointed to Philip Turley as being the killer, they only had circumstantial evidence. So when findings were taken to the court attorney, he actually declined to charge Philip of this crime. Some of the evidence that was brought to light was actually a past girlfriend that stated, and I quote, he liked the kind of fantasy sex from behind, including sodomy and neck restraints. Now, some of this was performed on our victim post-mortem, as we know. He also wore a size 11 shoe. He also worked as a prison guard and had access to the handcuffs and nightstick from that job. That sounds like a lot of incriminating connections. Mm -hmm. And as you heard in the previous interviews, Philip truly worked at the college near Mary Ann's house. Danae Langley is Phil Turley's ex-girlfriend, and uh, she sounds like she's more than happy to talk about how crazy their relationship was. Says Langley. Hey, I'm Kelly. I'm Steve you... Carter, Thatcher Police Department. We need to talk to you because okay. you're crucial to the case. Ex-girlfriends are always a great source of information in these cases, but it's tricky because you need to make sure that there's no uh, payback involved in what they have to tell you. 
But I don't want to be on camera. Okay, you don't need to worry about that. Danae has said some pretty incredible things about Phil Turley, and being able to talk to her today will give us a better sense of what to do with that kind of information. You're our very first person in the world of Phil Turley. Okay. Danae, did you know Marianne Holmes? Phil Turley had told me that they were engaged to be married. He referred to Marianne as his fiance. He told me that he bought land in Pima, Arizona, and that he was building their dream home that they were gonna move into when they got married. Now, when he said that, I knew that he couldn't even afford to go buy a motel room for one night. What kind of crazy is he? Well, I know that he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. When he's on a high and he's not taking his meds, he becomes psychotic. We know from your transcripts and your notes and your other conversations that he talked a lot about kinky sex stuff too. I do remember that he talked about somebody on their hands and knees going around on a leash on a collar and maybe whipping them or spanking them. He was obsessed with anal sex, and I didn't want to do that. Why do you say obsessed? How often did he talk Because he would never let it go. He just kept Always. on and on and on, bringing it up and wanting to do that, and I just didn't want to do that. That made him mad. We know from our crime scene that our suspect used handcuffs on Marianne, but we also know that he put a rope around her neck and dragged her away from the couch, where he then sexually assaulted her vaginally and anally with some unknown object. Danae's statements about Phil Turley's sexual habits have a lot of eerie coincidences and similarities to our crime scene. He worked as a correctional officer, and he said that whenever the prisoners wouldn't come out of their cell and cooperate, that the correctional officers would have to go in and use their batons and beat the prisoners into submission. He said that was the favorite part of his job. Did he have correctional gear? Did he have, like, his belt and handcuffs and baton? Did he have that stuff? Whatever correctional officers had, that's what he had. What's the most violent he ever was with you or talked about with you? One thing that he said that I could kill you and then I could F your dead body and there's nothing you could do about it. He talked about it like it would be really fun for him, but I would suffer. He said that he could commit murder in this valley and get away with it. Our interview with Danae Langley was really helpful, but you always want to get more information by talking to everyone who has firsthand knowledge of your suspects. And that's what our plan is next. And Philip Turley, is that ring a bell with you? Oh, I believe he did it. Right after that, he, he didn't show up for work anymore. He didn't even quit. He just never came back. What would be your opinion of Philip Turley, thinking back of him? He's psychologically crazy, and he held a gun to his head, and I told him I was going to call the cops. And then when I did, he disappeared. And I never heard from him again after that. The reason why I left is because we got into an argument and he took a swing at me and put a hole in the wall. Really? Any other big, big blow-up moments? There was one time um, when we were in bed having sex that he had tied me up. Uh-huh. But the power that I felt when he pulled my legs down to tie them just made me shut up and not say nothing and go along with it because I got scared. Talk to all the women in the life of Phil Turley so we have a good idea of the kind of man he is. And now it's time for Alan and Kendall to go find Phil Turley and talk to him face to face and assess whether or not for sure he is the one who murdered Marianne Holmes. I'm Kendall Curtis from the police department. Okay. And Thatcher. Anyway, we looked into the old Marianne Holmes case. We just doing some follow-up on that. And I didn't that. do it. Well, I'm not saying you did. Here's the deal. My life was pretty much destroyed in Thatcher. Well, that's why I don't live okay. there now. My well, business is gone. Okay. But that's what we're trying to do. Uh, and How are you going to make it right? Well, maybe this will help clear a lot of things up. Sweet. 
Phil Turley now lives a few hours outside of Thatcher, so we're going to take him to the local PD to interview him there. Oh, my God, he's bigger than he's big. We're just going to go upstairs. Okay. Let's come in loud and clear. Unless Phil confesses, we cannot pin this on him at this time. We have no eyewitness. We have no DNA. Honestly, what we need is a miracle. Obviously, you were very fond of Marianne. At what point did that relationship progress into more than just a work, professional type relationship? Well, it never progressed into any kind of relationship. We'd seen each other a couple of times. Mm -hmm. We met each other at two church functions, mm -hmm. and we went to a movie. Do you remember when the police, they took multiple items from your house? In that, they took your diary. Talking about being in love with Marianne. I don't think so. My mind, my imagination is working over time. This evening, my first thought was Marianne. My love deepens by the hour. On 7-1 of 95, now this is exactly one week, seven days before the murder. It's odd. I barely know her, yet my heart is all hers. Okay. So my question is, did you ever really go to the movie? Yeah. But you never write about it. You've got nothing going on with Marianne except in your head. And it's all right around the time that Marianne turns up dead. What do you think about the kids being left untouched? You have any inside thought on that? Around the time of the murder, one of Phil's friends approached the police and agreed to let himself be wired. In the transcripts are a few suspicious statements made by Phil, the most unusual being why Phil theorizes that the killer left the children there unharmed. I have no clue why you would leave the kids to have to grow up with that. So we had somebody who said that you said, leaving the children untouched, I want that kind of power. The children know it was there and that's power forever? I didn't ever say that, no. You didn't? But no. You ever been violenting your girlfriends? I don't think so. Heaven with the knives. What about your sexual interest? No tying anybody up? I don't know. I might have tied Danae up. I don't think so, though. I don't remember. How about handcuffs? No, I didn't own handcuffs. Oh, that was a good one. Because more than one girlfriend says handcuffs. It's not just Danae. That's good. You know, the way I see it is, you have this whole fantasy built up, and you have this perfect life. She's like the ready-made family. And in your mind, you have all these plans, and she poof, shoots you down. Rejection is not a problem for me. But all your suicide threats are made when you're being rejected oh, no. by a woman. There are many times. There has to be some motivation, some catalyst to push you into that direction. No, there actually doesn't. That's normal and true, Graham. That's the problem. I'm a difficult person. But I don't kill people. Would you be shocked that I said that I have DNA in there that I can't exclude you? No, but I would think you were lying. Yeah, I figured you would. There's a lot of unexplained things, man, that don't make any sense. Yeah. Some things I don't have answers for. Right. We're not going to break and solve this case. Not today. Not with these answers. He's bipolar. So he gets a pass on a lot of them. And he gets a built-in explanation for being a kook. Because he's not doing it today. Bottom line is he's smart enough, he ain't going to confess. No. And we're going to take you back home, but I have a feeling we'll be revisiting again. I would be more than happy to talk to you guys again. Matter of fact, if you call, I'll drive up there. You don't even have to come down here. Make it easy for you. What do you think after looking at him? I, I still think he's in. I, I can't rule him out. You don't have a case. No, we don't have no. a case. I think he's a kook, and I think he can't handle rejection. But his answers, you know, when you have to, you have to always remember that he's bipolar. Yeah. The fact that Phil Turley is bipolar 
adds reasonable doubt to this case, and there's no way of avoiding that. Without any more evidence, it's going to be just as probable for a jury to believe that a random killer is who did this to Marianne Holmes. Just to get the full picture of this crime, Marianne's daughter, Ashley, again, could only say that this man looked like a lion. Philip Turley, at the time, had very long hair and a beard. It's also interesting to note that when Philip Turley heard the television show would be aired, he took a long vacation down to Baja, Mexico, and returned to the United States to drive 18-wheelers in the Midwest after his return. Now, eventually, the TNT show had to come to an end with no other leads, so the hardest part about this case for them was telling Ashley that they did not have any other new leads or person in this case. Ashley is sitting here, and she wants us to be able to tell her that we're there. We know who killed your mom. And walking up to see her to tell her the news is really, really hard because well, I know what it's going to do to her. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt her. It's going to break her heart. Hey, Ashley. Hi. Hello, Miss Ashley. How are you? Good, good, good. Hey. You look cute. Thanks. Um... Ashley, unfortunately, this week we were not able to find enough evidence to tell anybody for sure who killed your mom. There is a suspect that they're focusing on, but there's also still the chance that whoever did this to your mom is somebody out there that we might not ever catch, okay? You should know that because of you, the DNA has been tested. They're now going to focus on one person. They may or may not solve it. But what you should know is that whether they solve it or not, you cannot control. And you need to tell yourself that you are moving into a new phase of your life. You go back home. You go back home and you think about what you want to do for your career and your, and your school and where you're going to live. And don't think about this anymore. You don't. You need to let it all go, okay? Your mom's talking to you. I know. I have this amazing family, but there's this huge hole, and no one, I mean, it doesn't matter how many aunts I have or how many best friends' moms that I kind of adopt as my own, you know? Nothing ever fills that. I just want everyone to feel better. You can't fix it, so stop trying. She's always worrying about everybody else. Her little sister, her uncle, her grandma. She's trying to fix everybody else, and I want her to know that she needs to fix herself. I did a lot of death penalty cases, and the families, they put their lives on hold, waiting for that execution to, like, make them feel better. And then they walk out, and they're like, that doesn't That's fix it? anything. That doesn't fix anything. And if you ever find out who did this to your mom, it's not going to fix your life. You make your life good. You're supposed to move on and you're supposed to feel better about everything, but at the end of the day, like, I just want my mom. But I know that I'm gonna get up tomorrow and the sun's gonna be shining and I'm just gonna have to keep going, you know, you can't stop. Thank you. If you wanna call us and email us and vent or ask questions or you hear something new, we would love to get a call 25 years from now because you're not worrying about this anymore that right. something happened. Before she died, Marianne wrote a series of letters to Ashley, and one of them reads, 
You cry when I put you down or get out of your sight occasionally. I don't want to spoil you, but I do want to make sure you feel loved. I want you to need me, but I also want you to feel good on your own. Well, after that interview with Ashley, Kelly and Yolanda told her that in a few years, 25 years from now, if you hear anything, go ahead and give us a call. Well, we're going to return to that November 22nd date in 2016 of Modesto, California crime scene that I talked about earlier. Police responded to a call at about 9.15 in the morning in Country Western Mobile Park that a woman had been stabbed and needed medical attention. When officers arrived, they found this woman in a mobile home as well as a male victim sitting in a Honda sedan that was stopped on the street within the park. Now, the two victims were the 54-year-old woman and the 56-year-old man. They were stabbed multiple times that morning and suffered life-threatening injuries from the attack, but they were expected to survive. The man that was arrested for this crime was none other than Philip Turley. I knew it, dude. Mm-hmm. I knew it. At first, I did think it was David Black because he kind of was like fitting all the boxes, but I, my next guy was definite, definitely Philip. Phil had recently moved in with this pair after his mom, who managed the park, moved back to Arizona a few months prior to the stabbings. A neighbor at the time stated that Phil had been mad at his roommate, which was that 56-year-old male resident. And he was mad for telling people that he was profiled on that TNT true crime show about cold cases. Phil also had a friend whose name was Alicia Nadine Gomez, along with a plan to carry out these revenge murders and confront them about talking about his private life. So you're telling me that Philip was so pissed off at his roommates talking about him being a prime suspect that he went to his friend and talked about confronting him confronting them and possibly murdering them over this yes exactly yeah so they decided to carry out this revenge murder for talking crap about phil being on this tnt crime show both phil and alicia brought these knives with them on november 22nd when they went to settle this dispute And during the confrontation, this is when Phil stabbed the man in the stomach and shoulder multiple times, all while telling the victim that he was going to die. So you're a murderer. Like, uh, even if they didn't die, like telling somebody that you're going to die and bringing a knife and stabbing them to death means that you're, you're a murderer. Oh, no. But remember his interview? He said, I might be... Um, a, a strange man or whatever he said, but I ain't no killer. Like I'm no killer, but I'm, I'm going no killer, to. But I'm gonna stab somebody and physically and like scream out to the victim that he's going to die. To jump to hey, let's revenge murder somebody clearly means you are capable of murdering. That's what you jump to. That's what you jump to. Instead of just saying I'm gonna have a talk with him or just ignoring it and just letting bygones be bygones, you went the extra mile to have a revenge murder plan. Like a confrontation with knives and to plot this destructive behavior. Now, it wasn't just Phil that stabbed, you know, this couple. 
both Phil and Alicia stabbed the woman who was there as well. So it wasn't just him who did the talking with knives. A former girlfriend of Philip told investigators that he was bipolar, which we all knew, and he could become psychotic if he wasn't on his medications. She also mentioned that he may have missed a dose or so since his mama left him. Philip was booked at the county jail for attempted murder charges, as well as his female co-defendant, Alicia Gomez. They both pleaded guilty the same day on March 19th to the premeditated attempted murder. There was, however, a press release, and I want to read that to you because it does kind of give you more of a description of what this crime really was. So I'm going to read that to you now. On November 22nd, 2016, Turley and Gomez armed themselves with knives before going to a trailer on Carpenter Road in Modesto to settle a previous dispute Turley had with one of the other residents. Upon arrival, Turley confronted the male victim and stabbed him multiple times in the stomach and shoulder area, all while telling the victim that he was going to die. Gomez attacked the female victim present and stabbed her repeatedly. Turley also stabbed the female several times. Both victims sustained life-threatening injuries. On March 19, 2021, Gomez pleaded guilty before the judge to one count of attempted murder and admitted enhancements for using a knife during the attack and causing great bodily injury. Judge Rivas then sentenced Gomez to an agreed-upon disposition of 13 years in state prison. Now, this is where it gets even better. So that was just Alicia's. Philip, in the statement, and I quote, Turley also entered a plea on March 19th, 2021, before Judge Rivas, to one count of premeditated attempted murder and admitted enhancements for using a knife during the attack and causing great bodily injury. He also admitted that he was previously convicted of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon in the state of Arizona. It is a serious felony under California's three-strike law, which will be used to increase his sentence in his current case. His current conviction for the premeditated attempted murder also counts as a strike offense and may be used to increase any further sentencing should Turley be convicted of a felony if and when he is ever released from state prison. Now, although Philip was never charged directly with Marianne's case, Thatcher Police Chief Chafin Woods said his department will continue to work the murder as best as they can. He also mentioned, and I quote, We have never stopped working on this case and will continue to exhaust all leads and possibilities available to us until it is either resolved or we have no further leads. We understand the desire from the public to bring the Holmes case to a close and to bring the suspect to justice. I can assure you that we are just as anxious as anyone. However, it is important to keep in mind the rights of all people and respect the due process afforded to us as Americans. It is often difficult to balance the need to be transparent and still protect the integrity of this investigation. We will do our best to accomplish both. However, at this time, we do not have any further information to release regarding these cases. We would like to extend our thoughts and prayers to the victims, 
families, friends, and anyone else who may have been affected by these tragic crimes. Now, while we don't really have a confession and this case remains cold, I'm going to let you all make your own assumptions. However, if a search warrant, which can now be served to Philip, should reveal a clue that has been hidden all these years, the crime would take precedence and Philip could face the death penalty in Arizona. Oh. So I know what I think and I have my own opinions on who did this and I'm sure many of you probably share the same perspective. And I just hope that maybe one day we will find a direct answer and we don't have to dance around who who the sus- suspects are. My money is going towards McPhilly. I think Philip did it to him. Honestly. McPhilly. 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 That's my name for him. It's not a good name. It's an evil name. The hash slinging <laughs> Thatcher. Yeah, the hash slinging thatcher we, we okay we said that off mic and we just thought it was so fucking funny um if you watch spongebob if you watch spongebob you'll you'll know yeah. what we're talking about if you don't watch spongebob then i feel sorry for you yeah i feel real sorry that you don't know who the hash slinging slasher is the most notorious scary person ever Moo. you scared me patrick <laughs> well that was a that was a crazy one it was a doozy that is a crazy one well, I just hope you guys enjoy it. I know it's graphic at times, but I just really wanted to make this case come to light and it's still technically open. So if you guys do have any information out there, Thatcher Police is still taking all their calls and hopefully maybe someday we'll get a confession because I don't see Philip getting out of prison anytime soon. True. True. Holla at your girl on Instagram <laughs> at the vile files. Holla at the vile files, <laughs> ladies. <laughs> Have a great Monday, everybody. Yeah. See you next week. <laughs>